0: John Muir and Robert Underwood Johnson were opposites in many ways, but even before they met, they had a lot in common. Most notably, a wish to preserve the place that would become Yosemite National Park. My guest can tell us how that partnership came about and what its impact was. He's Dean King, author of Guardians of the Valley, John Muir and the Friendship that Saved Yosemite, published in 2023 by Scribner. And welcome to University of the Air.
1: Hi, Norman. Great to be
0: here. I first have to marvel at how quickly the wilderness in this country became settled in the course of, what, 40 or 50 years after the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition and the early uh, forays of wagon trains and other pioneers into the West. It was already starting to uh close down in some ways with uh, Abraham Lincoln declaring the the first uh, kind of national park proto park I guess in terms of Yosemite in the 1860s
1: Yeah um Abraham Lincoln gave uh Yosemite Valley to the state of California to preserve and protect for all the people of the nation uh, because it was such a you know beautiful and unique uh place and uh, yes, we'd we'd gone coast to coast, and we're gobbling up the nation pretty fast at that point. Uh, and, and then, of course, after the war, in in rebuilding the nation, the 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 forests uh, would would really be under stress, and more and more um, uh, loggers would be eating up uh, California.
0: In those years, uh, while Muir was still out and about, pretty much on his own, what was it uh, the what was the impetus for Lincoln to sign away uh, Yosemite to the state of California, the Valley?
1: Well, Muir didn't get there until uh, a- after that. He got there a few years after the Civil War. But, but uh, the impetus, I think, was, um, you know, the, the gold rush had put a lot of stress on, um, on Central California and on the Sierra Nevada uh, there'd been a lot of damage done, and this was a really um, unique space. I think it was also um, something uh, positive that the nation could unite around and look forward to and and sort of take pride in.
0: And uh, so we follow Muir and his track in those years leading up to the 1860s, where he first becomes a, a player on this stage of conservation and maybe even restoration. Uh, what uh,
1: led him to become
0: one of the great naturalists?
1: Well, he was uh, he was born in Scotland and, and early on uh, his his grandfather would take him on walks um out in the countryside and along the um on the coastline, they would gather birds' nests and things they found. And Muir took a fascination uh with nature. His father was a a strict Christian evangelist and really whipped Bible verses into him. So it was was an escape and something uh, Muir cherished. He migrated to the United States with his father and family and and ended up in Wisconsin in 1849, the year of the gold rush. And they uh, farmed in Wisconsin. Muir worked basically from dawn to dusk. So he was outside all the time. And uh, I think relief from all that, the the farm work that he did was his fascination with nature and his enjoyment of, you know, watching animals and plant life. And um, Muir Muir was a a very ingenious guy. Uh, His father wouldn't let any book but the Bible in the house. Um, But uh, neighbors realized how uh, brilliant Muir was, and they smuggled him in novels and other books and Finally, his father figured it out and said, "Look, well, you can do that, but you can't do that. You know, you you got to work. You got to do your Bible work, all that." So, Muir built a uh, machine based on a clock that would pull the front legs out out from under his bed at 1 a.m. and dump him in a pan of cold water uh, so that he could get up and read. So um, that that was the Muir, Muir knew he wanted to do something good for mankind. He had a very expansive mind and. Um, he could have been an inventor and he did go on to to invent some things and and create some machinery. He went on to work in factories and um, and thought, well, maybe I'll do good for mankind by uh, making shovel handles and broom handles. Very practical. You know, it makes uh, life easier for for workers. Um, he also um, considered being a medical doctor. He He really had a love for botany and geology as well. And uh, a factory accident in uh, Indianapolis uh, where he was working in a wagon wheel factory temporarily blinded him uh, and he had a little time to think and realized that nature was the calling that he most wanted to pursue. At that point, he then uh, did his famous walk to the Gulf across the South. That was 1867. And um he uh got malaria, he was chased by alligators. He had all kinds of misadventures uh, on that journey. but uh by the end of it he had he had heard of uh, Yosemite Valley in California and decided to take passage to California and go investigate uh, Yosemite Valley. When he got there uh he he fell in love with it and he realized the Sierra Nevada you know were his calling. He was a very spiritual. Um, um, young man at that point. And for him, the beauty from say inspiration point, the waterfalls, it, it was all uh, he, to him. It was a, uh, you know, God's temple. It was the greatest manifestation uh, of God that he could find. And he wanted to dwell there. He wanted to study it. Uh, he figured out that um, it was glaciers that had created it, which contrary to to popular scientific belief at the time, so that's what brought him to Yosemite, and um, you know, kept him there.
0: Well, it's all well and good to love nature,
1: but how did he support himself? He wrote about the the valley uh, and for for magazines, and earned some money that way. He also worked in a, a mill in the valley, uh, and which became a bit of a, a point later on. But uh, they they harvested fallen trees. He was already very sensitive to um damage that that mankind could do to to nature because the gold rush had put so much stress on that area gold miners were still stripping the mountainsides you had you know sheep that were eating up the the um greenery around and Muir worked as a shepherd actually for um a, a couple of uh, uh, summers and um realized that the damage that they did um he 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 really had an ability to observe and analyze, and you know to understand that uh, the 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 smallest blade of grass was important as important to the environment as you know the bear or a mountain. It was it was all you know as he would say famously, it was all connected. And so you know that's what um, what he saw and what he knew um, needed to be preserved and protected to, to maintain the viability of, of this beautiful Valley.
0: By the time we get into the, what, the 1860s, 70s, is he farming in California?
1: He's um, not farming. He, so he's living in the Valley for a couple of years roaming and examining. Eventually he he does marry um, the the daughter of uh, a, a fruit farmer uh, and ends up running a fruit ranch um uh, in um uh, near San Francisco outside of uh San Francisco and um so he'll spend a decade doing that um he's already written beautifully about uh Yosemite Valley and the in the um Sierra Nevada and uh and there's demand he's he, Robert Underwood Johnson um was his editor at Century Magazine and um, Johnson's like, we need you back. We need you to write about it. And even his uh, his wife, um, Louisa Strenzel, said, uh, John, you know, uh, your calling is really writing. The The Fruit Ranch was taking a lot out of him. It was very demanding. And he was a meticulous, brilliant guy and doing very well at it. But um, they could see that it was, you know, sort of draining his energy and his health. And, and his wife said, you know, the, the the ranch is not the most important thing. Your family is, and Muir was a great family man. They had two daughters that he dearly loved. And your writing and, and what you can do best for, for humanity is get back to your writing. And so um, he did. Writing about nature in Muir's
0: time, I would think in particular, would be kind of a two-edged sword, wouldn't it? Because on the one hand, if your uh, readers are in the big cities of the East for example, and they're reading about how wonderful a place like the Yosemite Valley is, then they all want to rush and see it, and then it becomes developed for tourism. Doesn't that work against what uh, John Muir is trying to do?
1: Yes and no. I think, you know, contrary to popular belief, Muir uh, wasn't some purist who didn't want, who wanted to just preserve nature as it was and to keep people out he really wanted to bring people to nature. Uh, you, you know, that was really his, his ethos. And if you sort of take anything away f- um, from his life, it is that, you know, he believed that, uh, our, our people were purified by nature and that they, uh, that it was the manifestation of God and that they could come there for sort of spiritual salvation. So, um, and it was a two-edged sword, because if you if you brought too many people in, then you started to destroy the very nature that was going to sustain you. Still a problem uh, today. It is, indeed. Um, you know, the the overcrowding and the, I mean, he, he couldn't have imagined uh, that kind of overcrowding. He was even, you know, when there are a few thousand people coming to Yosemite, which was pretty remote in the day, um, he was worried about it and um, wanted to make sure that, that uh, the 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 national park, which he and Johnson had created around the state park that Lincoln had preserved, um, you know, stayed open and and um, and that there was open space for people to come experience it.
0: But you have to build roads to get them there.
1: He, you know, he was supportive of of, of you know bringing the train up to the to, to the border of the park of of getting roads to get people there. But um, but also wanted to make sure that, um, you know, there was open grazing still going on in the park. There was there was grazing going on. Uh, the valley had been preserved, but the the hills around it had not been preserved. And so, uh, you know, he and Johnson came up with the idea of, uh, you know, creating the national park. And Johnson said, look, you write me two articles. I will um, publish them in Century magazine. And then I'm going to take the magazine down to Washington put the magazine on the on the desktops of the congressmen and we're going to get a bill passed um and that's how Nash, that's how Yosemite National Park was created so um yes uh i i think uh he wanted to bring people to the park but he also was very aware keenly aware that we needed to um protect it um he also knew that um he needed to get people there to love nature uh to um to then have the political power to, to keep these places, um, protected. And, and really that's going to lead to the beginning of the modern environmental movement, a sort of grassroots movement where, um, he, and, and he created the Sierra Club, uh, in 1892 with some, some other professors in the San Francisco area. And, um, their goal was to, um, help recreation in the mountains, Again, they wanted to bring people to the mountains. They wanted to engender that love of the mountains, which they knew, you know, would help us protect them.
0: Has he at this point then done anything to actually reverse some of the damage to the uh, Yosemite Valley?
1: Well, I, I think he understood the um, the restorative uh, qualities of nature, that if we just stop messing it up, you know, it, it would, it would take care of itself. So, you know, he was, he was fighting to keep the, uh, uh, the, the sheep herding out of the valley. Um, he was exploring this, the Sierra Nevada and, in, in talking about the, the forests and the sequoias and trying to create awareness for all that, because the logging industry really, um, was just clear cutting anything. There were no restrictions. On it, and so they were they were logging right up to the borders of Yosemite, and they even had property within Yosemite. And um, Muir helped uh, create some land swaps to 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 save uh, parts of Yosemite that were still in private hands. Um, yeah, and he was uh, also involved. He and uh, Robert
0: Underwood Johnson involved in some kind of um, what do we call them jurisdictional um arrangements for the park that would make it more secure um he, he's it's been moved over to california at one point does it stay in uh california um, uh, jurisdiction or the at what point does it become a national thing
1: yeah. well the minute they created that national park uh it was getting uh, attacked by um by these um these business interests who wanted to continue to, to mine, to cut trees, to, um, to, you know, have their herds graze. So, uh, there was a constant sort of battle with, um, the, the, the state politicians and the federal politicians and, um, and eventually Muir and Johnson, what they really wanted to do and what they needed to do was have the Valley, which was in state hands, um, uh, recessed back to the federal government to create one big national park and have that the the governance of it all coordinated. Uh, and so that was a, a, a longer struggle. That would take them about 15 years uh, to get that to happen. And um you know in the meantime, Muir and Johnson helped bring about a, a, a national forestry commission that would uh create our national forests. Uh Johnson would uh continue to um to work with politicians and even getting uh well, president Theodore Roosevelt when he went on his western tour to go camping with Muir in Yosemite Valley, which Roosevelt was quite happy to do. He had he'd heard of uh Muir and knew of his writing and was eager to get away from the, the throngs of well wishers and you know the political <laughs> world and get out to the
0: countryside. Uh, he, he was, of course, uh, Roosevelt was Theodore Roosevelt, uh, a well-known outdoorsman uh, internationally.
1: Yeah, and a, and a lover of of hunting and preserving nature, um, largely two, you know, four, four hunters. And he and Muir would have an interesting back and forth on that. But they really, um, uh, you know, had a meeting of the of the minds in 1903 when when Roosevelt was out there and. Um, even after after Roosevelt leaves Muir, you can hear some of Muir's uh, elocution in Roosevelt's speeches. And, you know, of course, Roosevelt went on to name national parks and national monuments and, and wildlife refuges, many, and, and was um, our greatest um, uh, conservation president. So, uh, you know, but Muir brought, Muir certainly had an influence on that. And then President Taft came out and, and same again. Um, Muir was very persuasive and showing it, you know, he had the Yosemite Valley to show off and, and it was, it was a very powerful combination. What, uh,
0: do we have of the correspondence or dialogue between Muir and Theodore Roosevelt?
1: Um, there, there's a, a good bit of, of, a back and forth and, um, uh, you know, praiseworthy, very, they, 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 definitely were simpatico uh Roosevelt helped um uh, Muir whenever he could but on occasion um you know politics came to bear Gifford Pinchot uh, our first uh forester uh was really um Theodore Roosevelt's right-hand man when it came to to nature and he you know in, into governing uh nature in in using our uh natural resources and Pinchot was a more uh uh, of uh uh i guess practical in his desire to to use our natural resources and to um basically in some ways farm our forests um and uh not that Muir was completely impractical, he understood that we needed to use these uh resources to to build the nation and and for for many uses but um but there would be some clashing between Pinchot and Muir. And um, and Roosevelt sort of stood above it, and he he tried to smooth things over, and and you know really Muir wouldn't have had uh, uh, so much a say as it, it, if he hadn't met with Roosevelt and, and gotten that um, influence.
0: We're going to look at the relationship between John Muir and the aforementioned Robert Underwood Johnson when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with Dean King. The author of Guardians of the Valley, John Muir, and The Friendship That Saved Yosemite, published in 2023 by Scribner. And we're looking at this partnership, or we're going to get more into the partnership between John Muir, outdoorsman and naturalist, and this East Coast publisher, Robert Underwood Johnson, who was very crucial in the whole conservation and uh, restoration movement that. John Muir was so instrumental in uh, making effective in this country. Johnson had what experience with, with nature, uh, Dean?
1: Well, Johnson's a fascinating character. He was 15 years younger than Muir, um, raised in Indiana and, um, really, uh, Muir would be the, the great natural influence in his life, but, um, but he, he he was a nature lover. His, his you know again his his father took him out on walks and they you know in, enjoyed nature early on. Uh, Johnson Johnson was a, a precocious young man. He worked in a, a train depot at the age of eleven during the Civil War, and uh, was very good with the telegraph, and even um, uh, exchanging telegraphs with uh, Thomas Edison. During the war, uh, sometimes he would get the war news and have to go out and tell a family that their son, they lost a son. Uh, and uh, when Lincoln was assassinated, it was this young Johnson who took the telegraph and had to go out on the depot and tell everybody. He had a, he had an amazing way of being, um, you know, at, at important places at important times. He was later in Chicago during the Great Fire there and and describes that incredibly um and then when he was uh uh he was working for Scribner there and and uh selling books and then he got sort of a promotion to go to New York City and get into editorial and as he was going there he had the uh he he took an overnight train and and had the uh, conductor wake him up when they went by um Niagara Falls and uh saw the, the 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 wonder of that so um, he was always taken with nature, but he then lived in New York City and was at the center of uh, the nation's conversation. Really, Century Magazine um, was a place where we discussed our issues, and it was very literary uh, in, in a way that magazines were, you know, very much a, a, a powerful force in that day. He uh, he helped put together a series about the Civil War that took place over three years, where they interviewed um, the leaders on both sides of certain battles and really created a marvelous uh, history of the Civil War that's still very important today. It doubled the circulation of the magazine from 125,000 to 250,000 subscribers, and he became influential. Uh, he, he would go on to um, spearhead uh, a movement to create uh, international copyright. And that got him involved in politics. The magazine basically loaned him out to that movement, and he'd go down to Washington and uh, lobby the the Congress people. So he learned the ways of of uh, legislation, uh, all of which you know were setting him up to to be a force in the environmental movement. And at what point does he start uh,
0: expressing this interest in environmentalism in print? so he
1: um he was mirrors editor early on they didn't meet you know during the 70s and they they didn't meet um uh, because they, you know they were uh, writing to each other from across the country but after he, uh johnson did the civil war series then uh they were looking for another series and they did, did did it on the gold rush so johnson eventually went out to san francisco to finish off that series and that's when uh he and Muir met in in the palace as as you read at the beginning, uh that wonderful meeting. <laughs> and uh Muir convinced Johnson to, you know, take a break and go out to Yosemite with them and see it. Uh two things happened. They got out there and um Johnson did look and see for with his own eyes how you know beautiful it was and how magnificent uh the place was. But he also saw as Muir was telling him that it wasn't taken care of well enough and that uh, it was at risk and needed greater protection. And that's when, you know, Johnson was a real man of action, as was Muir, but but um, Muir in a different realm. Johnson said, look, you know, you write me two articles and, I, and I'm going to publish them in Century and and I'll go down to Washington with that and we'll, we'll get something done here. And so it was a, a, the, the beginning of a brilliant uh uh, relationship in that regard, they would uh, work together for about four decades, uh, and and there's uh, volumes of correspondence between the two. A letter took about six days to go across the nation at that time. <laughs> well, so, uh, things haven't changed much <laughs>
0: these days. <laughs> but uh, yeah, six days a lot could happen if uh, people are cutting down trees or uh, you know somehow affecting the uh,
1: the wilderness there. Really fun to delve into and, and go through. The University of the Pacific has gathered uh, all this correspondence, um, and and really, uh, the there's a history of the sort of nascent environmental movement um, in, in their correspondence. Are there points
0: where they have to kind of come to terms with each other?
1: Uh, sure, uh, you know Johnson Johnson could be considered pushy <laughs> you know he, he he, you know he'd say Muir you need to start an association out there um, I could do it out here in New York but you know you don't want that you don't want New Yorkers telling you know Californians what to do with the, the mountains and Muir, Muir would tell him look you know I love the outdoors I want to write about it but I'm not I'm not the guy to start any kind of you know uh, group like that and Johnson was you know would insist that he do it and they would go back and forth and Johnson finally found some professors that, that wanted to do it. And he got Muir pulled in. And of course they elected Muir president of it. Of, and, you know, that was the Sierra club sure. Uh, in, in 1892. And Muir, Muir would stay president uh, for, for the rest of his life. Uh, and I think it was something that he came to really cherish uh, at one point uh, as they're, you know, you know, trying to um, uh, create, uh, legislation Muir, Muir tells Johnson you've turned me into a lobbyist <laughs> you know, and but I think he's he's proud of it he's secretly proud of it how
0: does the Sierra Club was founded in the 1890s do you think compare with the, the goals of the Sierra Club today
1: Well, of course, they've evolved a lot, but I I think, you know, the the basic tenets are are the same. It's to, you know, preserve and protect nature and also to bring people um, to nature. Uh, I think the great lesson from all that is that uh, the way we will uh, take care of our planet is by creating understanding among as many people as we can and love for nature, that's how you know we get skin in the game, and people really care, and we'll put resources into it and bring political influence to bear um, much better than sort of arguing and and fighting you know over what we do and and so I th- I think the Sierra Club understands that it wants to bring people to nature, uh, which is you know what what Muir always did, always talked about, and and Muir you know he also had this this deep faith from his childhood. He never lost that. He sort of, it just sort of morphed into um, him finding it, you know, his church was in nature. And uh, he always had this wonderful faith uh, to the very end that that people would do uh, what is right and that we would take care of the planet in the long run.
0: Do you have a sense that Muir uh, read other, let's say, natural loving, if not naturalist writers uh from
1: before his time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He he was a fan of Thoreau and Emerson. Emerson even came out and visited him and uh and uh Emerson got Muir quickly, even though Muir was self educated largely. He 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 went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison for a couple of years, but was always struggling financially. Um Emerson wanted you know Muir to come out to to um to Boston and, and teach at Harvard. Uh, but, but Muir resisted and realized that, well, the reason why you want me to come out there is because I'm doing what I do, which is living in nature. And you, <laughs> you could do that or, you know, it's but, a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. So if I go to Boston, I won't be doing that. Um, and, 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 Muir really, um, he, he sort of clung to nature. He, he would, he would travel around the world several times. He'd go to Alaska. He would come to the East coast, But it was always he really wanted to get out um, to see to see the the planet, to find trees, to, you know, go see glaciers, to explore uh, nature. That's what he he really loved to do. How
0: broad was his reach or what sort of other partnerships might he have had with uh, conservationists, naturalists in other parts of the country?
1: well uh, John Burroughs was a good friend of his he went to John Burroughs's uh cabin in upstate New York um and uh, they they admired each other much uh Emerson came out to to visit with him but Muir didn't get east until after Emerson had died but he went to um you know pay, pay tribute to him at his at the cemetery and um and so um there were others from Harvard that had come out earlier uh, Muir had uh A mentor named Jean Carr, who was the wife of a professor at Wisconsin, she was a botanist, and they really um, they were soulmates in a lot of way. And she, um, her husband came out and taught at Berkeley, and and she would tell all the visiting professors, "Look, there's this guy out in Yosemite. You need to go see, see Yosemite, and you need to look up John Muir. He needs to be your guide." So there was a steady procession of. Um, of naturalists that, that came out to see him, to hear what he had to say, and Muir learned from them, and um, he was connected to the chain of thought through through that, and, and he was also a voracious reader as well. When he and Robert Underwood
0: Johnson did their, um, I'll call it politicking, lobbying, uh, mostly, of course, done uh, up front and personal by Johnson, what sort of
1: opposition did they have to overcome? Well there was a lot of um uh, uh of vitriol from industry uh which then you know of course they went to their political representatives and brought that that kind of force to bear um in uh in the state of California and then in in Congress um eventually the you know so they created the national park they fought for recession they created the forestry or helped create the forestry service They did a lot of good there. Eventually, they would. um, San Francisco, uh, which was looking for a uh, a water source, um, would come calling on on the national park, and really that would be the last fifteen years of Muir's life would be spent fighting uh, to keep San Francisco from damming up Hetch Hetchy in the northwest of Yosemite National Park and creating a reservoir there, which. you know, would would uh, mere fear uh, take about half of the park out of play, uh, and and so that um, that was a very heated political battle. How did he feel about uh, damming in general? Well, you know, there's um, again he was a he was a practical man who knew that um, we needed to use our resources, but and and he was okay if they wanted to dam up the river lower down. Um, He understood that it was important for the city to have clean drinking water, but there were a lot of rivers they could have tapped in Northern California. They also could have dammed the river lower down outside of the Tuolumne River, outside of the park. But, of course, it was much easier for the city to come to the federal government and say, we want to, you know, dam it up up there and, and take that space because if the federal government gave it to them, they wouldn't have to. Um, they wouldn't have to buy property from private, uh, hands. They wouldn't have to condemn things and go through the court system and they wouldn't make constituents angry because the federal government already controlled that property. You you realize that, look, if you come take this piece of the park, what are you going to do? You know, there was Yellowstone park. There are other parks. How are we, how are we ever going to protect anything? If, uh, any city that, that needs some resources could come calling and just uh, take it. Setting a precedent. yeah, yeah. It was a is a real matter, matter of principle for, for Mir. So he won the Hetch Hetchy debate. It did not well, get damned? It it did get damned, unfortunately, yes. Uh, so that that debate um he almost won. And then there was the um the, the, the earthquake of nineteen oh six and the great fire in San Francisco, uh which um you know was so destructive and uh it it really um, shifted the mentality. I think the federal government felt, uh, like we need to do something for, for San Francisco and San Francisco still wanted to dam up Hetch Hetchy, uh, which is, you know, again, it's in the Northwest part of Yosemite national park. And, uh, and that that would give them, uh, the, the persuasiveness to win this battle, um, which, uh, would be decided in, in 1914 by Congress, in the very uh, last year of Muir's life. It was. And, you know, um, some people say, well, Muir died on Christmas Eve of that year, 1914. And some people say it, he died of a broken heart, <laughs> having lost this battle. Um, one wonderful thing of, uh, that I discovered in, in in my research of this book was that Muir, you know, that's part of the Muir legend, but it certainly wasn't true because he he didn't have a broken heart. You couldn't break Muir's heart. <laughs> His faith was so deep. That he uh, to the very end he was telling Johnson, even though they went through this long battle um, and you know used the Sierra Club and generated thousands and thousands of letters, uh, really creating the modern environmental movement through this battle. Muir realized that that all the fighting they had done was going to pay off, you know, and eventually. And he knew he 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 maintained that faith that people would eventually get it and do the right thing. And that good would prevail, and so um he, you know Johnson was going through some hard times; he lost his job at, at the century, and um Why? was struggling um well the 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 magazine world was changing at the time uh there there were the politics, but also there were other mag- cheaper magazines that were printing for um you, you know that, that were were coming out that were cheaper the production values weren't as good and and johnson uh his board wanted to do something um with less integrity and uh, <laughs> johnson resisted that did, you know he, he was kind of old school on did, that matter
0: did his enthusiasm johnson's enthusiasm for the i'll call it environmental movement uh, cost him points at century
1: You know, um, it it may have had something to do with it. He put an awful lot of time into it and a lot of energy. uh, And he would be up, you know, until one in the morning writing senators about things and always uh, getting, you know, Muir's pieces uh, into the press and other places as well. So it was a very socially conscious magazine, and they valued that kind of community service. But at a certain point, you've got to think that it was um, draining you know, uh, resources in, in Johnson's time, um, uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, so, uh, their, their battle, um, their battle, you know, Muir realized, um, up, up to the end was going to benefit, uh, mankind. And in his letters to Johnson, he was constantly saying, Johnson, you've done great work you know, you're a great man. And we're always giving Johnson credit for creating Yosemite National Park, which Johnson did for Mir as well. He said, No, no, you did it. You did you know, and it's a wonderful part of their relationship. They were um very accomplished, but very humble, authentically so. And um and and so um they 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 lost the battle for Hetch Hetchy, but really they won the war. Um, they created this, uh, grassroots environmental movement, which would set the stage for 20, 20th century, uh, um, uh, environmentalism. Uh, and they, um, they also, uh, set the stage for the national park service, which was created two years after they lost the Hetch Hetchy battle, because basically the nation realized that they were right, you know, um, you you do need if you're going to preserve these places you need to set some rules you can't just let anybody come in uh, not that San Francisco is just anybody but <laughs> you can't let you know entities come in and one and, after um, the other yeah um, so they created the Park Service which would um, eventually standardize care for for the parks create uh, a professional service that, um, you know, could really provide for the, for the needs and also, um, get funding from the federal government in a, um, in a normal way instead of, they were constantly vying against each other in the early, uh, years and not really getting appropriations much at all and having to come up with new policy. Do we let cars come in, you know, in the early years and, uh, all kinds of issues were coming up. So, um, that, that was a sort of a watershed moment in 1916 when the, uh, when the Park Service was created. We're going to look
0: further at John Muir and Robert Underwood Johnson and the Yosemite National Park when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with Dean King. He's the author of Guardians of the Valley, John Muir and the Friendship that Saved Yosemite, published in 2023 by Scribner. It is the story of... John Muir and the publisher, Robert Underwood Johnson, and the relationship between them that uh, was so powerful in the creation of what would become Yosemite National Park. In this uh, strongly spiritual aspect of John Muir, Dean, uh, all of his uh, love for and experience with the outdoors, do we have any sense of his relationship with Native Americans?
1: We do. Muir, um, early on, even when he was in Wisconsin, uh, saw Native Americans moving through the landscape and, you know, it expressed a, a real empathy for them at the time and um, sort of shame that they'd been treated the way they were that by basically an invasive species that come in <laughs> and were driving them off their land. Um, uh, I, I think, you know... Um, Later on, he's so eloquent on nature. I think there is a bit of a void in uh him, you know because he lived through an era when we continued to drive them off their land and continued to break treaties and 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 do them wrong, and he didn't talk about that much. He was so focused on on nature and the natural world um that that we we probably wish that he had um talked about that more. Um, there's there's a sort of a passage also that I I think is really misinterpreted where he comes upon a, a group of of Native Americans um, in Yosemite or just outside of the valley. They uh, the, the the degradation was I think because the white people had driven them off their land had had changed the, you know the way they live had brought in alcohol and in tobacco and things that were um, destroying their way of life. And, you know, one, one reason we know this is because that Muir continually, you know, through his writing, admired um, the way they moved through the land, the way they could live off the land. So um, I, I do think that's a, a bit misunderstood, um, his, his feelings there. Um, but but I, I, I also do wish that um, he had maybe been um, a little more explicit in his concerns about um, the, the way the nation was treating them. How did uh, Muir feel about
0: forest fires? That they uh, have kind of a different uh, reputation today than they would have even uh, fifty or sixty years ago.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, remarkably, Muir did realize that they um, sculpted the woods uh, and used fire to um, to help with their their hunting to you know create better hunting grounds. Um, Muir was fascinated by fire i mean he he well understood sort of the cycle of life and the importance of fire and there's a remarkable um moment where he goes and and lives in a fire um he he he's He's going through the Sierra Nevada comes upon a fire and he um goes in there he he finds a secure place by a fallen sequoia and ties his mule up there and he goes and observes and watches the way the fire is spreading and observes the way it hits the trees and what it does there and it's a really beautiful description of, 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 fire. Um, and, and I think he understood that it was a part of that cycle of, of life. I think, uh, I, I'm not sure that he could have, um, predicted, you know, the way drought is now and in, in the, in the level of forest fires we're, we're having, but, but even, you know, back in the day when they set up this forestry commission to, to, um, create the, that would create our national forests. Um, Gifford Pinchot went out to do his sort of due diligence looking at the forest, and the thing that really amazed him the most was how much fire damage there was in these remote forests. Uh, So, you know, it's something that's not new. It it always existed, and we maybe tend to think of, you know, with a romanticized uh, lens that, that forests were, you know, just Pristine and gorgeous, but they—they they always had, you know, they're living things. Yeah. Were there uh,
0: mysteries that uh, John Muir never solved during his lifetime that we feel <laughs> we have solved today? <laughs>
1: um, uh, you know about about the forests. Um, I'm I'm not really sure if there, you know, are. I mean, he was so far-sighted that. He he would go and you know explain that um, the 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 grass is important above the valley and you know the the shrubs and the trees because they hold the snowpack. The snowpack is then slowly uh, absorbed into the ground, and uh, and then it's released over the course of the spring and summer because he was a farmer in the east a fruit fruit rancher he understood um you know even even that kind of far reaching uh thinking that maybe we think is a little more modern but but how important that that shrub and that grass was in the mountains to you know the the water that we could use um on the coast
0: did his uh, two daughters either of them become naturalists in, in any kind of uh, you know networking way
1: i think they they became uh nature lovers uh one of the things that the sierra club did was uh, create the uh the high trips that took uh took people out into um the sierra nevada largely And, and now of course the sierra club does it all over the nation and the world but um and so they they did become lovers of nature they they enjoyed the high trips and they became you know great uh supporters of his legacy Now, being out in the
0: outdoors, of course, does have a wonderful spiritual component to it for a lot of people. But at the same time, if you get a little bit off the path or the weather changes on you quickly, which I'm sure it can do in Yosemite, suddenly it's not that much fun. Were there instances in which uh, John Muir recorded having not all that much fun getting caught out there?
1: Well, it's really remarkable. He he was caught in some pretty sticky situations, and somehow, uh, you know, seems to thrive even even more. There'll, there'll be uh, cases where he'll be caught in a snowstorm. He'll build a little um, shelter, and uh, the next thing you know, uh, a bird will fly into his shelter. Uh, to take refuge and he'll be trying to feed the bird crumbs and take care of the bird, you know, and and it's just kind of mind blowing that you're worried about, you know, his survival and he's taking care of a little bird and then observing the snow and the, the wildlife that comes out in the morning. And he doesn't know when he's going to get out of there. It's still snow. It might snow for days. Uh, He's caught on top of Mount Shasta at one point in his shirt sleeves during a blizzard (laughs) and uh, lives on a, a fumarole that's, you know, Uh, it's volcanic and so there's steam coming up out of these um, vents and he's alternately getting roasted and frozen (laughs) by the blizzard it's just unbelievable (laughs) how to have a Um,
0: great time in nature
1: yeah he he was also well known for uh going out with very few provisions and just you know anybody who traveled with them most most of the time they they marveled at, at at the way he moved through the wilderness and in, in his knowledge but they also suffered because he ate very little he didn't really care for high cuisine so it, what what they did eat wasn't good but he would take bread and coffee or tea and um sometimes meat meat extract meat juice they called it back then was uh, kind of a, a health potion uh that he would take but um he was he was a rugged um guy, lean, mean, sort of uh, fighting machine who could move through nature almost like a, a, a wild animal.
0: Now, I'm sure that uh, in your researches for Guardians of the Valley, you have done considerable tramping in the footsteps of John Muir. But, dare I say, in relative comfort compared to what uh, <laughs> would have been available to John Muir 150 years ago. uh, Do you feel that there's still a little bit of gap between you and him in terms of uh, the amount of suffering you've done for nature?
1: Well, I whine a lot more about the suffering (laughs) I do in nature. I've, I was a a boy scout early on in life. And uh, I can remember not being very well prepared on some of my overnight hikes. And one, 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 uh, one night I woke up in the freezing cold and a banana I had taken in my dinner and lost was frozen to my leg <laughs> <laughs> mirror
0: never had that problem i'm sure <laughs>
1: yeah i don't think he did uh but uh you know i i went out there and, and tried to retrace his route into his first route into yosemite uh national well it was into the state park and i went through the coulterville and uh i was in a, a four wheel drive vehicle, but I got lost up on the uh, fire pass and thought I was going to have to spend the night up there, which, and I was scared just having to spend the night in my four wheel drive vehicle. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did get out. It took, it took several hours to, uh, get out of the, uh, the maze of, of unmarked roads. But,
0: uh, did, did Muir ever get lost? Did he record just saying, I really have very little
1: idea where I am. You, you know, I don't think I ever heard him say he was lost because he when he was out there, you know, even when he was wandering through the south, sometimes he he didn't really know where he was. He'd be in a swamp at one point. He was looking for a place in the middle of a swamp to spend the night. He was scared of alligators. A good, um, good idea. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but but he he didn't he didn't have a panic gene and he didn't have a fear gene. And um, one of my favorite moments in the in the book is when he's looking over uh, Yosemite Falls for the first time down into the valley, and he's crept out to the very edge, and he's looking out and studying the 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 beads of water as the water cascades over the edge of the bluff. It's taking on it's it's both dying. The stream is dying, and it's being reborn into a new life that it's going to have in the valley. And the way he describes that, and the way you know he 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 sees God in the uh, refraction of the light through the um through the water, and yet he's hanging onto the edge of the cliff. It is just nerve wracking uh, <laughs> and, and truly amazing. Possible to compare Yosemite
0: National Park with today with the way it would have been the last time John Muir saw it in 1914
1: well the I mean, the features are still the same i mean there are a lot more people there uh i was out in in october though and i'm always amazed that you can find you can find your space you can still despite you know the the throngs of people that that go to to see uh this glory uh you know i there's there's the tunnel view which has that that beautiful um long view of half dome and Bridal Veil falls and um but uh, and, and there are a lot of cars there, but you can you can hike up the path and go to the old inspiration point about a mile up. And uh, I did that and saw maybe five people there uh, I, in in Sequoia National Forest. Uh, I drove uh, uh, several miles down dirt roads in, the, in a four wheel drive vehicle, then hiked in a mile and a half and spent had lunch with the bull tree, which is perhaps it's one of the largest trees in the world. And um, for two hours, never saw another soul. So, you know, to be able to sit with that beautiful tree that that Muir talked about back in the day um, and and sort of commune with it, you can still do that. Uh, And I think it's really remarkable. What would you
0: most like to know about Muir that you don't know? Wow.
1: I feel like I, I got to know him really well. I guess the... The the thing that, uh, you know, history will never be able to answer is what would have happened if Muir had actually gotten out to Washington, D.C. and testified um, when they were having the Hetch Hetchy battle and for various reasons, health and because he, he just really didn't want to go east. He didn't do it. But he was so persuasive when he spoke. And I, I just I, I just think his presence there might have made a, a difference. Um we're not gonna know that. I'd love to, you know, have that conversation with him. And I know Johnson tried to get him to come and other representatives of the Sierra Club uh were there and, and his word was read into the record. But boy, if, if Muir had been able to, you know, walk those halls and be present, uh I would have liked to have been there.
0: Well, thank you for getting us pretty close to John Muir, Dean King. Thank you, Norman. It's a pleasure to be here. He is the author of Guardians of the Valley, John Muir, and The Friendship That Saved Yosemite, published in 2023 by Scribner. A pleasure having you on the show. And I hope you can join us the next time around for University of the Air.